You're listening to The 66, a podcast in which we go through the Bible one book at a time. And right now we are on the book of Ezra. This is episode number three for the book of Ezra. And uh, the way that we're looking at Ezra is in a series that will also include Nehemiah and Esther. And uh, we are talking about it in terms of restoration. Ezra has two parts, the first being restoration of worship, which we concluded with our last episode. And today we begin part two with chapter seven of the book of Ezra, the restoration of the law. I'm Drew Kaiser, and with me is Andrew Kingsley. And uh, we've been enjoying this so far, uh, working through these. This is officially our third podcast, and uh, we hope to get all the way through all the books of the Bible, hence the name The 66. Realize that is a huge undertaking, but we can't think about the, the future way out there. You go crazy thinking about the future. You've got to take it one day at a time. And today we're going to look at Ezra chapter 7. Now, let me give you a few dates just to get you grounded, give you a point of reference uh, with the history here. In uh, 538 B.C., Cyrus, king of Persia made a decree that effectively released the Jews from their Babylonian captivity, where they had spent about 70 years. And this all happened according to the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. So they began the trek home in about 536 B.C., uh, and that is what we call the return to worship. And in our last episode, we discussed how they restored the heart of worship, the temple, which was central to the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion. They finished rebuilding that temple after a lapse in uh, 516 B.C. Now, this is where the inspired record goes dark for a little while and picks up in Ezra chapter 7 with what we're going to talk about today. Now, the date for Ezra chapter 7 is 458 B.C., So I said Ezra chapter 6 concluded in 516 B.C., and now we're in 458 B.C. What has happened between Ezra chapter 6 and 7? Well, a lot has been happening, and you get that information, interestingly, in the book of Esther. So if you write in the margins of your Bibles, you could write Esther, for, um, and you could put the dates there if you wanted to. Uh, Esther was probably queen between 483 and 473 B.C. I've got a little note in my Bible. Esther, 482 B.C., that's probably the year when all those things transpired. That's our best guess. That happened between Ezra chapter 6 and 7. So it's not really Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. It's more like Ezra, Nehemiah. No. (laughs) I'm getting this mixed up. It's Zerubbabel, Esther, Ezra and Nehemiah, because Ezra and Nehemiah pretty much worked at the same time. So that's what's been going on in the, what is it, 58 years that elapsed between Ezra chapter 6, with the completion of the temple, the heart of worship, and Ezra chapter 7, which is what we're going to start talking about today. So there is a shifting of gears. We're going from the restoration of worship, which involved the rebuilding of the temple, to the restoration of the law, or the ethics of God's people. What good is it to have worship with no law? So, God 
providentially brings this scribe, this very talented man, Ezra, to the homeland, to Jerusalem, from his Babylonian captivity, his time in Babylon, which has become a province or satrap, I think is the name for it, district, if you will, of Persia. And this occurs in about 458 B.C. So Ezra is coming back, and the purpose for this is to restore the law, and he's carrying some contributions that have been made toward the restoration of the people over there, the rebuilding of the city. These uh, contributions come, I'm sure, from the Persian government, as well as from the Jews living in Babylonia who want to contribute but don't necessarily want to make the trek back. This uh, is, by the way, a very long and uh, tiring journey. And I, I found it interesting as I was reading it gives us how long it took Ezra to get there. Uh, Ezra chapter 7 verse 7 says that uh, they started going up in the... Uh, I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 7 verse 9. They started going up on the first of the first month. And uh, then they got there on the first of the fifth month. So from the first of the first month to the first of the fifth month, that's four months, right? That's a long time to travel. And uh, we think of traveling in our cars and, oh man, I'm getting tired of this same uh, you know, set of CDs that I have. Or, man, uh, you know, this, um, this is getting old listening to uh, my iPod or my iPhone um, all the time or satellite radio in my car and having this air conditioning and cruise control. They were traveling you know, in caravan, on foot, in the hot dust, facing dangers, bandits, wild animals, all kinds of things for four months. So you can understand why some would rather send a check than to go. And Ezra's carrying these contributions, and he also is going to restore the law. Now, we're going to talk about Ezra chapter 7, and what qualified this man to do this and the methods that he employed in order to do this. By the way, all of this came through a mandate by the Persian king who is now Artaxerxes. This is the son or the successor of the husband of Esther, who is called Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, but is known in history as Xerxes. And Artaxerxes... Um, he reigned... What, do you have his dates, Andrew? I've got them written down somewhere. Uh, let's see. Andrew's been very quiet. I need to put him to work. Artaxerxes, I've got him at 464 to 423. And uh, Xerxes, 486 to 465. So these Persian kings have long reigns, which says something about the prosperity and peace during in Persia at this time. Artaxerxes, which is the same king that you read about in the book of Nehemiah, he is sending Ezra, and you have a record of his decree, if you will, in Ezra chapter 7, verses 11 through uh, 26. Interestingly, that is in the original, in the language of Aramaic. But uh, we're not going to divide the letter of Artaxerxes up from the introductory text in Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. We're just going to outline all of this together. And basically, we're just going to look at it this way. We're going to consider, first of all, Ezra's roles. 
like the roles that he played as a leader of God's people in restoring the law. And then secondly, we're going to look at his methods. And this will be very helpful to us getting into the uh, next two sections where we think and apply. But let's do some reading now as we begin this. First of all, looking at Ezra's roles. And he plays three roles um, as a leader of God's people here in Ezra chapter 7. The first is he is a priest. And the writer, who is probably Ezra himself here, gives that to us in the form of a genealogy. I'm not as good at with names as Andrew is, but I'm going to take a shot at it as we read Ezra chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Now, after this, that is, after about 58 years, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzziah, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Okay, so... He's a king. Oh, yeah, well, there was one, Ahitub. I'm I sure. just didn't roll off the tongue very yeah. well. I think Phinehas is the only one I could pronounce correctly. Phinehas yeah. sounds like a... You know, pirate from, or maybe some... Or a character from a children's TV show. Yeah. That's pretty much the only reason I know the name. True. Not that I watched that show. Of course not. Mature. Yeah. Um, but this genealogy is here so that we can get his credentials as a priest. Only the sons of Aaron could be priests. A lot of times we use shorthand and we say Levites. But that's not technically correct, right? You could be a Levite and not a priest. You couldn't be a priest and not a Levite. Uh, Levi had several sons and only um, only one of them um, had Aaron. I, was, I almost said Aaron was Levi's son, but there's several um, years between Aaron and the man Levi. But there were several families within the the tribe of Levi, and only the sons of Aaron could serve as priests. And here we have Ezra's credentials here that he is a priest. So that's his first role. But really, his second role is the one that is emphasized and the one that is most important, which is picked up with in verse 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given He was a scribe. That's his second role, a teacher of the law, sometimes lawyer. But because of our usage of the term lawyer, we prefer scribe because it has more of the religious sense of a preacher or a teacher of the Word of God. The Word of God was very important to Ezra. Uh, The term, and I counted it, the phrase law or statutes or judgments of God Something similar to that is found 11 times just in this one chapter with reference to Ezra the scribe. This was his main emphasis. This was the priority of Ezra's life. He was a scribe, a teacher of the law. And uh, that's why many people think that Ezra is a good candidate for the author of Psalm 119, uh, the longest chapter in the entire Bible. What's really interesting about Psalm 119 is 
with the exception of, I think, two or three verses, um, Psalm 119 mentions the law of God or the commandments of God every verse. Uh, the author had a deep appreciation for the Word of God, and that was probably Ezra. Ezra was also a compiler of the canon, a preserver of the Old Testament canon. Uh, God used him, I believe, providentially to preserve the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament throughout the captivity and into Ezra's day and age when he was putting together the prophecies that we have in the major and minor prophets. And uh, by putting together, I don't, of course, mean writing them all, uh, but um, preserving them, putting them in a special place in the temple so that they did not get lost, bringing them up to the people, teaching them to the people, etc. So he was a very important scribe. And this, was he the first scribe? I don't know. But uh, this occupation proliferated into Jesus' day. And of course, uh, they weren't supportive of Jesus. But you see the scribes mentioned many, many times. Uh, These men not only taught the law, but also copied it down in an age when we did not have the uh, technology to duplicate texts that we have today. The third role, and this, you know, may be one that I made up. Um, most people think of Ezra as having a dual role as priest and scribe. But I think a third one is implied at the end of verse 6, where we read, in addition to being priest and scribe, that the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So I would say he was also a chosen one of God. Not in the sense of the Messiah, but you read not just this one time, that the hand of the Lord was upon him. There were a lot of priests in among the Jews. There were a lot of scribes, I'm sure, a lot of teachers, but only one was handpicked by God to do what we're talking about in the next two episodes, restore the law, the ethics of the people of God, and that was Ezra. He was the clear leader here until Nehemiah came on the scene in a civic way and led the people in the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. So Ezra's threefold role He was priest, scribe, and chosen one, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. Now, let's go on down to verse 10 and examine his methods. Verse 10 is a very efficient verse where we have three of four methods mentioned here. Uh, I'll read the verse and then we'll uh, break it down. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. It's no wonder this is a favorite text for preachers, because you got three points right there in that one verse. First of all, his methodology was to study the law of the Lord. One translation has investigate the law of the Lord. So personally, before he could teach anything or talk about anything, he put a lot of hard work into being a student of the Word of God. And I think that you know all preachers start out that way. But uh, some fail to be lifelong students, and I don't think there's any excuse for that. If you're going to be a teacher of the Bible, whether you're a Bible class teacher or a preacher of the Word, you've got to be a lifetime student, always in the Word of God. Sometimes um, I've heard some preachers complain. I don't know if complain is it, but they say, I feel guilty because I love studying the Word of God, and yet um, that's a big part of my work. I don't feel like I'm working. It's work. Just consider yourself wise that you've chosen a work that you enjoy. 
Um, study should be a major part. Now, it shouldn't replace the hard work of evangelism, uh, visiting with folks. Um, of course, all Christians should be doing those things as well. But if you're going to stand up in front of a group of people and teach, the first step is to study. And a lot of people, I'm afraid, enjoy being in front of people, enjoy the accolades of uh, giving a lesson, but they don't enjoy the work of study. Mm-hmm. And you have to earn the right to be in the pulpit yeah. or in front of a Bible class, yeah. whatever you. I know there's, uh, there's a lot of people that'll, that do not like teaching. They don't like getting up in front of people. And uh, I know particularly with uh, some young men, uh, that I try and get to do devotionals all the time. I say, well, I can't do that. I, don't, I can't. I can't get up and talk to people. And I say, it's really easy when you know what you're talking about. And if you study something, and you, and, and that just goes to your point of, if you're going to get up and do a lesson or teach a class or whatever it is, you have to put it. I mean, it's a, it, it's a prerequisite that you study beforehand and that you study well. Because what's going to happen, if you have not studied, if you don't know what you're talking about, it's going to show when you get up in front of folks and start trying to tell them about something. It's just, you can tell if somebody's really put in the study or if they haven't. And there's a, and I think that it's the case, they warned us at, in school uh, to make sure we always stay students uh, because I think they said the average life of a, a minister fresh out of college is like two years. And the reason because of that is at that two-year mark, they run out of all the stuff they yeah. studied in graduate school or in, a, uh-huh. in undergrad. They can't use their old stuff they had to do anymore. And so now they're forced to have to start studying or they're going to have nothing to te- nothing new to teach, nothing new yeah. to say because they're going to have run out of their own material. That reminds me of a, uh, a gospel preacher from a bygone era I have his book of sermons. He's well known. I'm not going to say his name because this story wasn't embarrassing to him in the time, but from our day and time, it seems embarrassing. He went and preached a gospel meeting, which in those days lasted seven days. Uh, I don't know if he preached two or three sermons on Sunday. It may have just been one lesson per day, but I think he had seven sermons, and he preached all of them, and throughout the week, he was very good at those seven sermons. They were pleading with him to stay a second week, which was something that was done back in those days. It's unheard of today. And he kept saying, no, there's, I've got to get home. There's no way that I can do it. But they were having lots of baptisms. It was a very successful meeting, and they felt like they wanted to keep the momentum going. They were begging him to stay a second week. And finally, he had to confess to him that he only had seven sermons, and that's all he ever preached were the seven sermons. And so what they did is they said, that's fine. You start back over and preach those seven sermons in the second week. And he did, and it worked for that day and age. We don't live in that day and age anymore. People are, um, they they can just access information better. Back in those days, they were lucky to have a Bible. These days we have the Internet, we can access all kinds of things. People are wanting more information, information of the thing. So more so than ever before... A preacher or a teacher of the law has to study. And I want to return to this. I think there's a lot we can talk in application in terms of what does it mean to study. So let's come back to that and apply. Uh, let me get to the second methodology, which which was to practice. Not only did he study the law, 
but he also set his heart, and I didn't talk about that phrase, but he set his heart or prepared his heart to do it, to practice the law. And there is a whole nother thing. There's a lot of preachers who study and teach, but they don't practice what they preach. The third methodology was to teach it. That's the most obvious role of a teacher of the law, is to stand up and actually communicate God's Word to people. That's more than just reading it, more than just giving a commentary to it. You know, we we strive to read, think, and apply in this podcast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's involved in teaching. There's all kinds of things. I was telling Andrew, I, my sermon for this Sunday, I wrote a sermon for Sunday morning, I looked at it. It wasn't teaching enough. It was just... Um, you know, interesting to me and uh, reflected some of my study, but it wasn't a sermon. It didn't, you know, encourage people, persuade them, did not help them understand it in today's context. So I had to go back and rework it, do it over again. That's part of the work. Teaching involves a lot of preparation. There's one last uh, methodology I want to bring up that comes later in the chapter in the body of... uh, Artaxerxes' decree. I'm going all the way down to verses 25 and 26, where Artaxerxes says, You, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment, or for confiscation of his goods, or for imprisonment. This uh, fourth method is in force. Uh, he was told, don't just study, don't just practice, don't just teach, but enforce it when discipline is required. And uh, we know that uh, God's Word still calls for church discipline. It's uh, difficult for some people to practice these days. But a church is not just a place where you sit and passively listen, but the people of the church practice the Word of God. And when it's not practiced, elders and churches in general are called upon to enforce the law in the way, in a loving way, mm-hmm. but in a way that is effective to keep the leaven out. Because as Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 5, which is the longest chapter on church discipline that we have, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, you let a little bit of corruption in and tolerate it um, without any correction whatsoever, and it will leaven the whole lump of dough. So you can see there's another application we can talk about if we have time to do it, which I'm not sure we will. Because while this is one of the shorter sections of study that we have, uh, there's so much application here for us to learn. Did you know that we are starting to get into parts of the Old Testament here where the languages are going back and forth between Hebrew 
and Aramaic. Yes. You were aware of this. Yeah, because I had, in college, uh, me and a buddy of mine, we took Hebrew and we took Aramaic. And so we got a full dose of... (laughs) We got a full dose of swapping back and forth between uh, one and the other right here. Actually, right here in the book of Ezra. A lot of these phrases are burnt into my mind. Now, Hebrew and Aramaic are related. They're in the same family of... Semitic languages. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only time you know the average person hears this term Semitic is anti-Semitic, which means anti-Jew. But uh, this, these, there's a family of languages from the Middle East that are the Semitic languages. Aramaic is one of those. Hebrew is another. But they were mm-hmm. sufficiently different that in uh, I can't recall exactly where, but in in some place in the Bible. Somebody speaking Aramaic and the Hebrews, the people speaking Hebrew, can't understand what he is saying. So, uh, mm-hmm. d- d- different, very different dialects, even though they belong in the same family. Mm-hmm. I think that was with uh, was that with Hezekiah and those guys coming to the wall and uh, Hezekiah yeah, was shut up in Jerusalem. Yeah, in the book of the Isaiah. Or, yeah, very good. I think that's where I remember, I remember that. that. Yeah, our podcast, our warm up podcast yeah. of Isaiah. So if no one else, at least I learned wow. something from our podcast. And I forgot something. Oh, that, that's good. Well, you would have taught it to me in the first place, so I guess it, <laughs> that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Uh, so it's interesting because most people say, well, the Bible's written in Hebrew and Greek, but in actuality it's written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Mm-hmm. The Aramaic sections are few and far between, but they always seem to have something to do with post-exilic people coming from Persia. So... There's a long section in the book of Daniel, starting in Daniel chapter 2, verse 4, and going to, I don't know, some, some point before Daniel chapter 7. And then uh, we have this, this is the second time we've encountered it in Ezra, the first being, I think, in chapter 6, right? Uh, in some letter yeah, from, Darius, from Darius. And then here, it's the letter from Artaxerxes. So in Ezra, it's reserved... For the diplomatic letters from kings in Persia to governors or leaders in Judah. Uh, then there's it's scattered out in a few places, a few other places in the Old Testament. And then some of the words are used in the New Testament. Uh, one that comes to mind is when Jesus went to the home of Jairus and his little daughter had died. And he, and he goes up to her and he says, Mark tells us this was in Aramaic. He said, Talitha kumi. I'm sure I didn't pronounce it right. <laughs> uh, but Mark translates it, which is to say, little girl, I say to you, arise. Uh, so this was the language that the Jews began to use after the captivity. And uh, we were talking about during the break how that this probably came from the people of Syria, who are also called the um, people of Aram, Aram, Aram. And uh, all of these people were mixed together during the captivity, and the language that surfaced to the top for some reason was Aramaic. And so when these Jews come back from captivity, they go into captivity talking Hebrew, they come out of captivity talking Aramaic. And that happened very quickly in terms of a language vanishing, 70 years, and all of a sudden they're, they're speaking a different language. Um, so the language that the average person probably spoke during the days of Jesus and his disciples was Aramaic. Mm-hmm. 
they knew Hebrew because they studied the Old Testament scriptures, which the majority of were written in Hebrew. And they knew Greek because the world language, kind of comparative to English, was Greek yeah. at that time. And the New Testament was written in Greek. But uh, the, the language of, you know, the economy and transaction, commerce, and, you know, doing everyday business was Aramaic. Mm-hmm. And if you watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, it's filmed in, in Aramaic so that you can kind of get a taste of what it was like to hear the people speak in those days. Uh, something else, I wanted to discuss the phrase that has popped up over and over again, beyond the river or across the river. It was very confusing to me when I first started wading into the book of Ezra until I realized that river here was the Euphrates River. And as a Bible student, I always read river, and I think Jordan River. And across the river to me uh, means to the east of Palestine. Because, uh, you know, a lot of times in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, Moses will refer to the river beyond the river. And he's talking about Jordan, and he might be talking about the two and a half tribes that settled over on the other side of Jordan or something like that. And that's what I've been trained to do. But in these books, when you read river, you're thinking from a Persian standpoint or a Babylonian standpoint, and the river was not the Jordan River. The Mm -hmm. river was the Euphrates River. So beyond the river is actually west of Persia over in Palestine. They're talking about you know, the region where the Jews were sent back to their homeland. And I was reading about the uh, Herodotus broke the Persian Empire down into 20 satrapies. It's such a funny word. And uh, one of those was beyond the river. It was literally what they called it, beyond the river. And uh, it would include Syria, Phoenicia, Palestine, even parts of Egypt, excluding Arabia because they weren't able to get the Arabs to pay tribute or include that into the Persian territories. Uh, Sheds a little light on what we talked about in the last episode with this uh, Tatanai figure who began to make inquiries into the rebuilding of the temple, told uh, Darius, you know, I'd like some proof from Cyrus. You know, was there a decree from Cyrus? And Darius said... Yes, there was, and we would like you to help pay for the rebuilding of the temple. Thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. So uh, that guy was beyond the river, and I'll have to confess that when we were talking about it, I was picturing him in Persia and uh, made some comments about how funny that was. But in the end, he was probably living somewhere. Maybe he was a Syrian or a Phoenician. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's ever identified. Yeah. Um, one other thing so in this um, letter from Artaxerxes to Ezra about you know going back over and what you are to do in restoring the law we mentioned that one of the roles Ezra played was that of enforcing the law and he mentions the death penalty here Uh, that's all the way down in um Verse 26, whoever will not obey the law, let judgment be strictly executed on him. 
whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Ezra had total authority here to enforce the law in whatever way he saw fit. And somebody might read that and say, wow, this Persian is fierce, you know, death penalty. We need to be reminded that, you know, there's a lot of the death penalty in the Old Testament. You know, a lot of uh, penalties for uh, the breaking of the law was being stoned to death. And uh, so that is important to know. And I think it's really important to know when it comes to the Ten Commandments. Because a lot of Christians today believe they're living under the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments were part of the old law. Mm-hmm. And as such, carried death penalty with a lot of the commandments. And a lot of people don't realize that. Uh, we had an incident in the early 2000s and here in the state of Alabama where... Um, this uh, judge was fighting to preserve a monument to the Ten Commandments in the Alabama courthouse in Montgomery. And he would, you know, Christians were picketing and fighting for the Ten Commandments as part of their heritage. And I guess there's a sense in which it is because the New Testament is built on the foundation of the Old Testament. But uh, the Old Testament and the Ten Commandments, not a part of the New Covenant, not at all. And you say, well, yeah, the ethics of the Old Testament are carried over into the New Testament. Sure. You know, we as Christians don't kill, steal, commit adultery, covet, etc. However, it's part of a new covenant, not the old covenant. And uh, when Paul said you are released from the law in Romans 7 verse 6, one of the examples of the law that he gave in verse 7 was thou shalt not covet, which we recognize as part of the Old Testament. Um, and the reason why this is important is, um, you know, under the new covenant, Jesus died the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Under the old covenant, you died the death penalty. First seven of the Ten Commandments carried the death penalty. You don't honor your father and mother, you're stoned to death. You don't remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, you're stoned to death. You put a god before other gods. Uh, There are passages in the Bible that command Israel to take out other cultures in war who do not worship Jehovah as the one true and living God. I don't want to live under that anymore. Um, You know, Jesus died so that I don't have to. So while I have respect for the Ten Commandments, I have a new and better way in the New Covenant, the Law of Grace. And I'm reminded of that as I look here at Ezra being given the right to, um, you know, enforce a death penalty and all kinds of other harsh things for breaking the law of God. about Ezra, there's something eerily familiar about what he's supposed to do, and I think that's because Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 is basically a job description for a preacher, which is what I am and what Andrew is, and so, I, you know, we should be taking some notes 
mm-hmm. as we look at Ezra here. Uh, so the threefold, well, you know, I won't get into the fourth role of enforcer because I'm not so sure that preachers should see themselves as enforcers outside of the body of Christ, the church of Christ, where uh, you're in your congregation, you should practice church discipline. I don't know if we'll have time to open that can of worms, but um, I do want to talk about the first three, and then if we have time, we can talk about church discipline. But I think we'll get into that um, next episode if we don't get into it in this episode, because Ezra does some of that enforcing in the next part of the book. So he is to set his heart or prepare his heart, and we said it was three things, to study, practice, and teach the Word of God. That's what preachers should do. Study, practice, teach. And uh, you turn over to the um, letters to Timothy and Titus in the New Testament, you get the same kind of thing. For example, 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Paul says to Timothy, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Here's uh, the job description as it is given in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and following. Well, let's start in verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. I see here, you know, more practice. Be an example. Be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And then over in Titus, you see the same thing. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, and he's been talking about others, talking to elders in particular, but now he turns to Titus, the preacher. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then if you go on down to verse 15, this is really interesting to me. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So in terms of the setting of an example, the practice, I think it's implied more in in Titus than in Timothy. But you put all of that together and you get basically study, practice, teach. Mm -hmm. You teach by your mouth and teach by example. And as we said earlier in the podcast... That requires a lot of study, mm-hmm. a lot of study. So let's talk about this, for example. Um, what is, What does it mean to study? This is something I struggled oh, with when I first started this, and I'm kind of 17 years into this now, preaching, mm-hmm. I think. And you, you know, I'm excluding school. You've, <laughs> you've been going a couple of years. and yeah. Have you found it hard when you don't have um, a college professor directing, guiding your study, has it been difficult for you to do the work of study? 
Uh, I think it depends on what exactly we're studying. Uh, I know last week, uh, or earlier this week, it's been a long week, earlier this week uh, when we did the previous episode of this podcast, when we did chapters 3 through 6 of Ezra, I'm talking about Zerubbabel, uh, my study for that, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know, it was, it was easy, almost. I mean, not easy as in, you know, I mean, it was work going and <clears throat> finding sources and weighing options here and there and this and that, but it was, I guess I didn't, I didn't struggle to, to actually do it or find direction in doing it, and there's, um, I'm, I'm going to forget the seven uh, steps here, but I just got out of the class where we talk about the seven steps that you should take when you study a passage. And uh, I just took a final on this and got them all right. But uh, that was two weeks ago. Let's see if I can do this. Um, the first thing uh, that we've been taught is to just survey our text. So what we do, if we're doing Ezra chapter 7 for this week, uh, you just I would just read Ezra chapter 7. Um, and then secondly, I think it's you consider the context of the passages. And there were five of them. There was biblical, historical, cultural, literary, and one more. Can you think of another one? Oh, well. Textual? Uh, no. I can't remember what it was. There was biblical, historical. Oh, well. There's biblical the, uh, would be textual. Yeah, there's a 95 mm-hmm. from my, if, I'm, if I'm taking a test That's right pretty now. good, though. I already got some points off. But uh, So basically what you do then is you would read... Ezra 7 again, and you would, any of these things like Artaxerxes, um, we talked about Ezra being a scribe, uh, we've got here uh, priests and Levite singers and gatekeepers, stuff like that, we got a mention of uh, the first day of the first month, he went from Babylonia, traveled for four months down to Jerusalem, so maybe you would, you know, you would maybe pick, choose, if you had time, you could do them all. But all these different topics to study, kind of see them all the way through, figure out what point in history you're in. And uh, with all this stuff, my anchor for all this, it's probably bad, but my anchor for all this is uh, Leonidas and Thermopylae with uh, Xerxes, because that that's the biggest part of world history that I remember from this time period. Uh, with all of Persia and everything, that's kind of one Why of is that bad? I don't know. I think it's just because the movie 300. Oh, okay. And so, about, well, I, I had known the story of Thermopylae long before I saw that movie. Well, it's so okay to not. get, like, you know, a favorite thing in history and relate everything to that. Yeah. I, know, I, I hear mostly about that date, for me, historical context, 586 B.C. That's a date yeah. that sticks because that's when the temple was destroyed. And I usually fit everything either before that or after that. That's mm-hmm. just kind of a marker. Yeah. You've got a marker. Everybody has something like that. You know, you talk mm-hmm. about American history, uh, you think about these dates like 1865, 1945, yeah. you, you, and you put everything before or after it, and it helps. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's, I think everybody does that, and it's not, you know, bad. Don't, don't feel bad. <laughs> okay. It's Okay. But we're way off. Uh, you were giving me the there were seven. seven and we've done two. We've practice. These are like practices of study. Yeah, there was survey. survey. The text. I really hope my professor is not going to listen to this. By the way, he's not. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to. There was survey the text, um, study the context, or consider the context. Man, I have a little acronym. Text for this context. One. Okay. Yeah. Uh, survey context. Uh, another one was make a detailed analysis. 
of your text. And that involves looking at keywords mm-hmm. and any sort of grammatical issues. So this would involve looking at it in its original language. And you don't have to really know all that much about the language. You just have to know what sources to look into. you got to know the guys that do know the language. And then you can read what they have to say. And let me throw this in. The ones that know it the best have made translations. Yeah. So if you're not a you know trained linguist or whatever, you haven't taken a Greek class or Hebrew class, mm-hmm. you can get um, two or more translations side by side and see if they read differently on these key yeah. words. Mm-hmm. Or you can pull up blueletterbible.org and hit the little Bible link or whatever it is. It's easy to find next to the verse mm-hmm. and see... They give you like eight or ten different translations right there. Yeah. That's all we're talking about doing. Oh, yeah. Now, if you have bought a, and I've got on my desk here, Mounce's Complete Expository Dictionary of Old New Testament Words. Not a very expensive book. It's in English, so you don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to use it. Uh, if you've got a tool like that and you want to, break that out and use it, all the better. But you don't have to have anything besides Mm -hmm. a translation to do this kind of thing that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because those guys, those are committees of the most. It's not just one or two guys. They're large committees of, uh, really, I guess, the best scholars in their area. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that got together and made these translations. So most of them, uh, most translations, obviously, are going to be a great... The probably the best place to go <clears throat> comparing these things side by side. Yeah. Our guest preacher did that Wednesday night. You know, mm-hmm. he kept picking on me. I was glad I was following along in my Bible because yeah. he was preaching from the King James <coughs> version, and I was using the ESV. And when he got to something like I know in First Corinthians ten, he was working on the Greek word koinonia, and uh, he was preaching from a translation that has communion. And he said, "Drew, what does your translation have?" And I'd say participation. And so he concluded from that that this word can mean communion or participation, which is helpful because we were talking about the Lord's Supper, which we often refer to as communion without thinking about what that word means. It means participation. There we've done a word study using nothing more than just a couple of translations of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay, what's number four? Uh, Number four... Andrew is do. doing this without notes. He's just like rubbing his head, and the stuff just comes out. Well, your no. head is like a a, a lamp, Aladdin's well, lamp. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, I know the last three, and I'll try and back up and get the fourth oh, one. Okay, it's um, I'm having trouble with the fourth one. I think it's got something to do with if there are any variant readings in the text, and that'd be your footnote. Uh, if there's a footnote yeah. that says the Greek might say this here, that step involves finding out why that variant is there, what what old manuscripts say this, what old manuscripts don't say this. That one's pretty tedious. I think that's what that one was. Then the next three, uh, I know number five was integrate. You just take all the things that you've read and you put them together, basically. Mm-hmm. All your conclusions, put them together. Um, six was reflect on what you've studied. So you put it all together, you read it, you think about it. Uh, maybe here, if there's something you're not sure about, you go back, you redo the whole thing or whatever. Uh, and then the last one is compare, which is going to be where maybe you'll get some 
respected commentaries out and see how their conclusions compare to your conclusions. I like um, how that's last. Yeah. <clears throat> and then here you're not necessarily just learning people's opinions first. Yeah. But but you you get what the Bible says first. Now, don't be intimidated by that. That's that that was intended for like yeah, that was for formal our, education. Yeah. Right? That's a process. Exegesis. Exegesis. Yeah. Yeah. Which means to read out of the text. Yeah. Now, basically, though, you know, I'm going to bring up something you said a minute ago. You said that it was easy to prepare for this podcast. And I mentioned that, you know, it gets harder when you get out of school and you're trying to study without somebody guiding you through the study. Yeah. These comments point to what study is. Basically, studying is reading with a plan. The difference between just perusing your Bible and study is a plan. And the reason why it was easy for you to study for the podcast last, the last episode is because you, you had a goal in mind. I've got to get this material done. I've got to figure out what this means. I've got to mm-hmm. you know, learn how to read, think, and apply this for our listeners. When you're in college, it's easy because the teacher says, I want you to write a paper on the names of God. You've got to do that. You've got yeah. an end game. Mm-hmm. And the reason a lot of Christians have problems with Bible study today is they don't make a plan. They just get a new Bible. They go to the store and buy a new Bible, and they just open it up. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people just do this. They, they just open it up and read wherever they open it up, and they're like, oh, I can't understand this. Mm-hmm. It's because you've done no preparation. You haven't put any thought into what you're wanting to learn. Mm-hmm. So you go, what you do is you say, I want to figure out the book of Ezra. Or I want to learn what baptism is for. Or I, I want to memorize these verses. Or, you know, uh, get an idea of what it is you're wanting to accomplish. And then you're studying. Everything else is just casual reading. Oh, yeah. And don't get frustrated when you don't. Like, for if you want to learn the book of Ezra, don't get frustrated when you can't do it in 15 minutes. Or you can't do it one night. Not oh, a yeah. lot of people drop their study because it just... It requires too much time. Yes. And it is a very... I mean, it's just like anything else. Some people, their minds are a lot more apt to just soak something in and get it, and they got it good. Let's do something else. But for me, I know... I mean, I can I can study and get something ready and, and present it and have it there, but for it to actually sink in and be in my head and to just be on call, like with these uh, exegesis steps I just tried to remember, but I couldn't really remember them. Um, It just takes time. The more time you spend in reading it, the more time you spend in uh, just reflecting on it, Uh, the more it's going to make sense, the more it's going to, uh, I guess, the better grasp you're going to have of it. So it's... Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's easy to get discouraged. And study, but I do think that uh, I don't know how we're doing on time here. We're for good. This section. We're good. Um, I do think with teaching, I think we said you got to do three things uh, that we read from Ezra's example: study, practice, and teach. Um, I think that studying and teach or studying and practicing are both prerequisites. There we go. Prerequisites for teaching, um, and I think it's interesting what Paul said to Timothy. Um, he tells him to do all these things, let no one disregard you. And I'm thinking of, if someone is coming to teach me, and I'm sure everyone recognizes this, if you got a preacher 
up in front of you that you know has that doesn't study. He's got his sermon from what is it, sermoncentral.com or something where you can just go. I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, good, good. Uh, whatever. There's some website where you can go and just grab sermons. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, no study beforehand. You can tell your preacher's not working. He's not studying. Yeah, you can. T- it shows. Yeah. When, when oh, yeah. somebody does something like that, mm-hmm. um, and, and then you know he doesn't practice whatever he is up there teaching about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to listen to anything he's saying. You are not going to qualify him. You will right. disqualify him to teach you. So I and think, we've lost we've lost sense of what preachers are supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Now I, I don't believe that a preacher should just sit at his desk from eight in the morning till five in the evening, studying and reading and you know playing around on his computer. Mm-hmm. And then you know at five the whistle blows, shut the book, get up from the desk, go home, eat supper, and yeah. and. You know, that's not my view of the life of a preacher. That's somebody who's not doing his job because mm-hmm. you've got to study and teach. And sometimes that means getting outside of the walls of your office yeah. and teaching some people. So I don't want to be misunderstood here. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it, the other extreme, is not doing the work of the preacher either, which is constantly just milling around, talking with people, visiting people, uh you know, never in the office, never opening a book, never trying to do the work of study because you say, well, I don't care how much is in my head. If I'm not getting out with the people, then it doesn't matter. That's an excuse for laziness. There has to be balance in preaching, and that involves both study, hard work of studying, and then, of course, communicating to the people both publicly and privately. And if you're lousy in the pulpit because you didn't study, you don't need to be preacher, and you're not doing your job. So it need, there, both of those need to be there. And I'm saying that because I've noticed that some churches show disdain for study. They they actually think their preacher should be everywhere, like at every birthday party, in every home, all the time, at every hospital. And and look, I I go to as much as I can. I do. I try to make visits. So again, I'm not making excuses for not doing that. But you know, if if the sermons aren't being preached, then he's not doing his job. And here's why. Here's why. Because everybody is supposed to be visiting and showing love and serving mm-hmm. and, and praying with people. And God made a role. S- that's supposed to be specifying that, emphasizing that. And that's called the elder, right? I mean, that is who the pastor is. That is who the shepherd is. The preacher is to master the word and to preach with all authority, Titus 2.15. He is supposed to know that book inside and out. He should be able to talk about Ezra. He should be able to talk about Isaiah. He should be able to talk about the book of Revelation. He should be able to talk about the Gospel of Matthew. He should be able to answer your Bible questions, and he ought to know the nuances and subtleties of his current culture and be able to blend that together with the biblical culture to get the scriptural mandate for Christian living today. He should know that book inside and out. He should know how to communicate it. And 
then he should also be out visiting people, not because he's a preacher, but because he's a, a Christian, a brother in Christ. And these people who think that I need to be at the hospital because it's my job to be at the hospital don't know what the work of a preacher is. Oh, yeah. He's supposed to study, practice, and teach. And practice, yeah. Okay, that's part mm-hmm. of practicing. And I liked what you said about earning the credentials. I think that's how you put it. Mm-hmm. That's in the practice thing. But, um, you know, I think we've we started trying to make the preacher do the whole of the work of the church. Oh, He's yeah. supposed to do it, they, the whole thing by himself. Mm-hmm. And it's not working, you yeah. know, where that happens. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, there's there's a capacity in which a minister, you know, you're as, as mandated, certainly by Paul with Timothy and Titus, you teach. You know, there's, there's just such a big emphasis placed on be ready to preach the word, study to show yourself approved. You know, all these, all of these uh, similar phrases and words that pop up again and again and again, tell people to be ready. Um, and you find I don't want to get off too much on the work of an elder here, but you find that uh, with elders in the in the book of Acts, uh, where you have the first deacons come along, uh, Peter and company are sitting around, um, and an issue comes up. Maybe you can help me here with the exact chapter. Acts 6. 6. Um, yeah, where the apostles, uh, we will devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Acts um, chapter 6. Yeah, we find... Verse uh, 4. Yeah, these guys are sitting around, the, the disciples, who are the leaders, really at this time, they're the leaders of the church. Uh, Peter later is uh, referred to, and there's James that's called an elder and all kinds of stuff like this, but... Uh, we're talking, these are the leaders of the church right here. And what, what to me is interesting is that, uh, let's see, let's read in verse 2. The twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so what happens here? Uh, these widows, if you read in verse 1, there are a bunch of widows not getting their food. And these guys, as the leaders of the church, say, look, we we simply do not have the time to worry about making sure that these women are fed directly. We can't do all the X's and O's. We can't handle the logistics. So what you, what you guys need to do, pick out from among yourselves some people who are capable of handling it and let them do it. And that's, that is how they handled their position of leadership. They let these things, and now I'm, I'm getting off into elders rather than ministers here, but, but it is important to further define, to specify the work of a minister and to distinguish that from an elder. Uh, an elder, to me, is somebody who takes this application right here in Acts 6 and puts it in our church today. There are things, there are a lot of logistical issues and things like that. It's not necessarily feeding widows, getting food to feed widows. But to me, it's, it's the same scenario. The elders are the ones that are saying, look, we are devoting ourselves to this work of ministry. We are devoting ourselves to being the ones who are shepherding our people. Uh, when, when something goes wrong, we're going to call them up. We're going to tell them we want to meet them and pray with them. Uh, when they've got an issue, we want to be the ones there to help guide them 
uh, and to just support them so they don't lose their faith in a, in a difficult time. You know, we're also going to be there in the good times and, and all that stuff, but that's uh, going a little too far here. But the main point is that these guys, the leaders of the church, said we are devoting ourselves to the teachings of the apostles and to prayer and to our ministry, basically. We're going to devote ourselves to ministering to people. And these other things, appoint for yourselves men to do those. These men right here are the first deacons. This is where deacons comes from in the in the New Testament church. And so to me, I guess it's interesting to note that an elder... Uh, has, has should be concerning himself with the the spiritual day to day of the members rather than the organizational day to day of the church as a corporation. Now I know the elders uh, need to oversee that, of course, but I think when an elder's main focus has become the work of a deacon here, then really they're serving as a deacon, not really an elder. And preachers get they are left with the responsibility. Of being the elder, they were left. They're left with. They're called pastors. And it turns out churches. that neither one of them is doing the ministry of the word, which yeah. is what you know. Ezra is a great example of. We could talk about this all day long, and I think we'll have more time to talk about it uh, in you know upcoming podcasts. I'm sure. I uh, want to close with this idea. You know, we talked about the dual role of Ezra as priest and scribe, and it's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is called teacher and priest over in the New Testament. I think about Nicodemus who came to Jesus and he said, we know that you are a teacher from God. And his disciples would call him rabbi, and he obviously was a master teacher, but as well, he was a high priest. And we read in Hebrews 7.23 that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's a great place to end, thinking of Ezra as a foreshadower of our scribe and priest, Jesus Christ, who saves us to the uttermost and we come to God through him and he makes intercession for us. Thank you for listening. If you want to contact us, you can email us at uh, my email address is dkaiser at arcoc.com. You can get Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. Look us up on the web at the66.net. 66 is a number. Next time we'll finish up the restoration of the law as we look at that in more detail. Thanks for listening.